If you have your Bibles, open them to Matthew chapter 5. We're kind of just walking through slowly the book of Matthew over the next few, well, really indefinitely, I think. I'm not totally sure. We're just going to be in Matthew for a while, okay? It's going to be fun, I promise. Uh, so as you're turning to Matthew, um, one of the things, and you probably already know this, I, I'm a millennial. I grew up a millennial. You kind of stay the thing you grow up in. It's part of growing up. Um, so the thing you may not know is I didn't just play video games growing up. That's the main thing I did growing up, but that's not the only thing. I also did things like play with Legos. That's part of growing up as, as a millennial. And I learned as a long, at a young age that the best way to play with Legos is to take your big bucket of Legos and just flip it over. Just dump it on, and for me, because I was spoiled, I, when I say one big bucket, I mean like four big buckets of Legos, and just dump it over, because it was just so much easier to organize through and build stuff from there. So that's what I did. Uh, I, I dumped Legos out and built it, usually to the dismay of my own stepmother, who would then later come in, because we all know who good, how good eight-year-olds are at picking up their things, and uh, step on a Lego, and everyone knows the story with, with that. Uh, maybe you didn't have that story, you didn't grow up playing with Legos, but it was like puzzles, right? You dump out the puzzle, you flip everything over, you find all the straight edges, you piece the puzzle together. I hate puzzles, actually, but I at least know that much. For me, I'm like, why spend time putting stuff together? Legos are more creative. I don't know. Anyways, I say all that to say, uh, I think sometimes this is kind of how we have to handle the words of Jesus to some extent. And here's what I mean by that. I mean, we have to take what Jesus says and we have to just kind of like lay it all out there. Just put it out there and then start asking a bunch of different questions, start piecing everything back together to try to make sense. Now, here's somewhat where the illustration breaks down because it's not that we can dump all of Jesus' words out and then piece them back together how we feel most comfortable with. That's, that's not what Jesus wants us to do. If anyone does it, that's not the right way. What we have to do is get to what is Jesus talking about, what's the original context, what's he trying to communicate. But outside of that, we can take all of his words, start asking a bunch of questions, and then trying to piece together what we think Jesus is trying to say, or really just how do we best understand what Jesus is trying to say. Because what I've learned is understanding what Jesus was trying to communicate, what the Bible is trying to communicate, is not often just a, a simple task. Because most of the things we read today, uh, we have been trained from an early age, you read for information. You read for information. From third grade on, I was doing standardized tests that would be read this and then take this test about this and prove that you comprehended what you read. It was over and over. Read for information. Read for information. And that's what we do. We are trained as Western people to read for information. When you go read a cookbook, you read the cookbook for information. No one goes to bed at night. It's like, I really love to read a cookbook tonight. That would be fun to do. We, we read instruction manuals for Ikea furniture. We read our textbooks. It's all about taking information from that and putting it into us. And you can read the Bible that way. And I'm not even saying that's a bad way to read the Bible. In fact, I think that's a part of reading the Bible well, is understanding the information. But we have to understand that the Bible, at its heart, is not modern literature. It is not written to 21st century Western Americans. It is written for 21st century Western Americans, but is not written to Western Americans. Meaning, at its heart, the Bible is what I like to refer to as ancient Jewish meditation literature. 
And I just don't know how often you go about your days reading ancient Jewish meditation literature. If you read the Bible, you do. But like, how often you go about reading meditation literature in general? I think like poetry, it's, I don't know, is anyone out there weird enough to say, like, I read poetry books? I was curious if one person might be like, I read poetry. Yeah, no, like we don't read meditation literature as much anymore. We read formation. So how do we get back and understand the Bible as ancient Jewish meditation literature? And I think this is really a beautiful thing because what it starts to communicate to us is that the Bible is able to simultaneously communicate to the imaginative wonder of a child and at the same time the complexity of the Ph.D. scholar. This is what God's word is capable of. And it, so it'll speak truth to your life on this surface level reading, and then it will demand you go back and deeply think about what it means. You'll read it, and you'll have to go back and think about it. And then you'll read it and have to go back and thinking about it. And I think Jesus embodies this very, very principle all throughout his Sermon on the Mount. He is constantly going to say things, and he's not just going to give it to you for free. He's going to say, you're going to have to think about that one a little bit more. You're going to have to go pray about it. You're going to have to talk to your friends about this if you really want to draw out all the things I need you to draw out from this. Meaning, if we're going to do our due diligence in following Jesus and adhering to his teachings, it will demand us spend thought and time and prayer and discussion over his words. But I would say, like, what else better do you have to do, okay? That's what we're going to do at least for a few minutes. So here's what I'm going to do. I am going to metaphorically dump out the box of Legos. I'm just going to dump it out there. And uh, my goal in doing that is a couple things. And then we'll see at the end if we can take all these pieces and piece it back in together the way Jesus wants us to understand what he's saying to us. So my goal, you might feel one of three ways with this. Here's kind of what I've learned. Uh, if you're anything like my mom when I dumped out Legos, uh, you might feel anger like, Philip, I don't even want to deal with this right now. Why are you wasting my time? Just tune out. I'll tune you back in in a little bit. It's okay. Um, you might feel like me, and that's just excitement. Like, I can't wait to see what pieces lay on the ground after this and what we can make out of it. And it might just feel absolutely overwhelming to you. Why do you have so many Legos, Philip? And that's fair as well. But just bear with me. I'm going to metaphorically dump out the Legos, and then we'll start piecing it back together. My goal is to overwhelm you a little bit, but we'll see about that. Let's start off by just reading Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. You ready to dump out the Legos? All right, I'm going to go really fast here. I'm sorry, but just for time's sake, I'm going to go, okay? I'm going to have a list of questions up here so you can kind of follow along with me as I go through these lists of questions. I'm going to start in verse 13 and walk down. Kelsey, if we'll just go to the next slide, we'll get this thing started. So Jesus starts out you. The first question, who is the you that Jesus is talking to? Obviously, we have to go back to Matthew chapter 4 and start piecing together these yous that Jesus is talking to. It's the least of these. It's the oppressed. It's the demon-possessed that have been healed. It's the paralytics. It's the people that hear Jesus saying, the kingdom of God has come, and they say, I have to be a part of it. And so they're giving up everything, and they're following him. And then it's significant to say this you is not singular in Greek. It's actually plural in Greek, so it's not just you, and I've worked really hard to lose my southern accent, but it kind of helps for this. It's y'all. 
You all are the salt. It's not you as an individual. It's you together are the light of the world. And then we can go, and what's the significance of salt? Is there Old Testament references to salt? Oh, yeah, there are Old Testament references to salt. Leviticus 2.13 says that salt is a key aspect to the grain offering. And then it ends that verse by saying, with all your offerings, you shall offer salt. And then Ezekiel 43 repeats that same idea. In Numbers 18, God is establishing what he calls a covenant of salt with the Levites. And what that is, is uh, God saying, hey, you're working a job that doesn't produce necessarily income or you're not farming to do anything to provide for yourself. So I will make a covenant of salt with you, Levites, to make sure you know I always have your backs. I'll make sure you have land to live on, you have homes to live in. That's my covenant of salt, God says, with the Levites. And then in Second Chronicles, God's going to do the same thing, but this time it's a covenant of salt with David and David's descendants, saying that, hey, God's making a covenant of salt with this lineage that the eternal king will come from. And it's God's promised assurance to these people that he is who he says he is. There are times in the Old Testament that salt is used as an herbicide. So in Deuteronomy 29, uh, when it talks about God destroying land, he destroys it with brimstone and salt so that nothing can grow. In Judges 9, a guy by the name of Abimelech goes out and he conquers a city. And as he conquers, the next thing he does is he goes and he sows all the surrounding fields with salt so that that city cannot rebuild. Uh, crops won't grow there. It's a way to destroy things. Um, Job 6 just says that salt uh, tastes good. Job says, that, can that which is tasteless be eaten without salt? It's a pretty easy thing to point out. 2 Kings 2.20, there's a purity rite where Elisha takes a bowl of salt and he puts it in bad water and it becomes good water. And there's more, but I'm just going to stop there for now for time's sake. So here's just Old Testament references to salt. Does it have anything to do with this? I don't know. We're dumping the Legos out. What does it have to do with cultural implications in that time period? Well, I think taste is an obvious answer. Uh, you know, uh, Paul picks up on this in Colossians 4. Let your speech be gracious and seasoned with salt. In a time where things are just kind of plain and bland and spices are rare to come by, putting salt on your food generally is a really rare thing that makes it much better. So there's taste involved. But there's also preservation involved in that time. Salt's necessary when there's no refrigeration to preserve meat. It's a necessity of life and nutrition. You're living in a dry, arid climate. Uh, you're losing sweat and stuff, losing salt through your sweat. So a good, healthy, nourished person is going to have to have some sort of salt intake to replenish that type of thing. And then what about when Jesus says, if they lose their taste, can salt even lose its taste? Is that physically possible? These are things I Google when I'm studying for my sermon for some reason. And I learned salt does not lose its taste. Well, what does that have to do? Is Jesus wrong? Why does Jesus say if the salt should lose its taste? And scientifically, NACL, salt, is an extremely stable substance, and it doesn't lose its flavor. This is why you could go online on your phone right now, and you can buy Himalayan salt from ancient times that will be delivered to your doorstep, and you can have 8,000-year-old salt. Of course, it has a 10-year table or shelf life. I don't know what that means, but that's intriguing to me at least then what does being thrown out and trampled on mean? Is there a literal equivalent to that metaphor? 
what's Jesus getting at? And then we get into light of the world. We've already had the conversation on the pluralized you, but then what does Jesus mean by light of the world? In John's gospel, Jesus calls himself the light of the world. It's one of his seven key I am statements. But when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, it's not necessarily a message of hope. I mean, it is, but as much as it's a necessary of, I'm going to bring to light the things that you're keeping in the shadows. It's a message of judgment, of I'm here to bring judgment on the world in a way. Well, does Matthew have that in mind here? What about in context of the people Jesus is talking to, that term light of the world, would that have had any significance to a Jewish person in first century Judaism? And then we take it back to the Old Testament. The first thing we see God do in Genesis 1 is divide darkness from light. And that's going to be a theme that's just picked up over and over again throughout the Old Testament. The Old Testament wisdom literature is going to have Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. And it's continually going to point to this picture where darkness represents chaos and the struggle of sin, which ruins and destroys humanity. And light is this thing that God then provides to overcome the darkness and give hope. To, to prevent the chaos of dark. Then we start reading stories about this, like in Exodus 10 with the plagues. God puts darkness over Egypt, but the Israelites have light. So Israelites have light, Egyptians have darkness. Then Isaiah is going to pick up on this theme, and over and over again, he's going to refer to Israel as the light of the nations. So Isaiah 42, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will keep you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Chapter 60, arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you, for behold, darkness shall cover the earth, a thick darkness of the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the blessings of your rising. And then we can go in and Jesus says, be the light of the world so that they can see you. And then who's the they Jesus is talking about? And then how do we reconcile this idea with go, let them see your good works? And then in chapter 6, Jesus comes in and says, hey, when you pray, go pray in private. Don't pray in front of people. When you give, don't give as if someone to be seen. When you fast, don't fast as someone to be noticed. Do these things in private. How do we reconcile those two things together, Jesus? What does it mean for people who don't follow Jesus to glorify God? Okay, Legos are on the ground. How are you feeling? Just dump, dump it all out, right? Do you see what I mean by metaphorically dumping out the Legos? Two illustrations, four verses, and Jesus gives you a lifetime of implications because that's how good Jesus is. That's how incredible Jesus is. So let's start piecing this together a bit. And also, just to say, there's so many things that I can't even get to in this that we don't have time for. But let's start piecing this together. And the first thing we have to ask, if we're going to really do this due diligence and justice, is what is Jesus' main point? What is he going to try to communicate? Because whatever we're going to piece together, if we land somewhere that's not Jesus' main point, we're the ones that's wrong. So we got to get to his main point. So when Jesus comes in and says, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, I think if we could just simplify that as much as possible, we would come out with something like this. This, this whole year we've kind of been focused on how do we live intentionally like Jesus? What does it mean to live intentionally like Jesus? So I'm going to say it this way, and here's your slide. Living intentionally like Jesus means we change the people around us. Salt of the earth, light of the world, means our existence must make a difference. 
It must make an impact on the world around us. Whatever Jesus means, whatever interpretations and implications can be drawn out, the simple point is those who follow Jesus, whoever they are, influential or spiritual zeros, rich or poor, educated, uneducated, they are not just saved so that they can one day go to heaven when they die. They are saved and commissioned to follow Jesus right here, right now, doing the exact same things he did, changing the world, changing people the way he changed the world and the way he changed people. The presence of Christ followers should be as noticeable as salt on food or light in dark. That's what Jesus means. Now we can start putting the implications together from all of this. So let's piece it together. Jesus begins, you, Again, the plural you. I think this is so important for us to recognize in our typically hyper-individualized American society where we read that and go, I'm the salt. Yeah, I am the salt. And I think Jesus will say, yeah, you're a part of the salt, but it's not just you. You all are the salt of the earth. You all are the light of the world. You, in your individuality, individuality, that's a hard word to say, you, you might contribute to that, but your saltiness, your light, so to speak, is always in direct proportion to the community of Christ followers around you. It's in direct proportion to your church, be that First Baptist or your local church where you worship at. This is why I want to continually highlight we change the people around us. It is a pluralized concept. It is us together. And then Jesus says, you are. Jesus declares identity, not direction. Jesus is not sending his people out to work really hard so that one day they might finally be the salt and the light that they need to be. He's commissioning them to go and work from the identity he has already given them. It's not a really work really hard to do this for me, guys, okay? It's a, you are already salt. If you follow Jesus, if you claim him as your savior, you already have the properties of salt and light instilled into your new identity he's given you. You are. He declares transformation of the people he gives his life to. The transformation makes them salt and light. So the command is not go and be. The command is live as I have made you. And with that in mind, we can finally get to you are the salt of the earth. And like we said, there are all these pieces we could start to pick up and piece together here. But I just want to focus on two of them. Before we do that, let me start here. I think just surface level, perhaps most obvious interpretation is uh, you are the salt. Don't lose your taste, uh, its flavor. If salt should not being, be salty, Jesus seems to be implying some term of taste within this. And I think there's just something to be said there that's like Jesus' followers should make the world more enjoyable. Like they should make it a better place. A, a, a community with a church should be better than a community without a church. Like that's just what Jesus is saying. I'm not saying we always do it right, but that's Jesus' vision for what the church is supposed to be. Make things better. Now that being said, I think there are some other reasonable interpretations, but to get you to that, I need to take you to the Greek really quickly. So Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, but the salt should lose its taste. Now that phrase, lose its taste, is one word in the Greek. It's the Greek word morenos. may not sound that common to you, but we actually have an English equivalent of the word morenos. It is the word moron. 
where we get our word moron from. Yeah, that's exactly what the Greek is. Uh, I was telling the college students this. is one of my favorite Greek facts. Your second year of college, you're a sophomore. That's a Greek compound word, the word sophie, which is wisdom, and moranos, which is moron. You're a wise moron. That's, you're smarter than the freshmen, but not as smart as the juniors or seniors. That's, that's the word sophomore. There you go. You learned something today. You can't say you didn't. So Paul is using this word morenos, and he's saying it means to become dull or foolish. If the salt becomes dull, if the salt becomes foolish. Now, you don't talk about salt that way. That's weird. So our interpreters go in and say, well, if it loses its taste. And that's a fair interpretation. It absolutely is. But every other time this word is used, um, it's used in places like Romans chapter 1, when Paul is critiquing the Roman culture for abandoning God, and he says, For although they knew God, they didn't honor him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools. That word, they became fools, is the same one as if the salt should lose its flavor. So there have been people that have tried to criticize Jesus, be like, scientifically, Jesus, salt can't lose its flavor. How could, if Jesus is really God, how could he say something like that? And I think Jesus would say, I think you're the one that happened with Morenos in it. No, I don't think Jesus would say that. I think Jesus would say, okay, salt might not be able to lose its flavor, but it can become impure. It can make you sick if the wrong thing mixes into it. So so what is Jesus getting at? I think he's saying, if you are the salt, don't get mixed into the wrong things that make you lose your usefulness. Instead, be salt and make a difference. And we could go in and talk about all of those differences. The two I want to focus on are, as salt, change the world. We change people around us by preserving the world around us. And there's all of these things we can talk about. Well, what does that mean? Preserving what? Preserving First Baptist Church, preserving American good family values. And maybe I think we would just get at, if we were being honest to the text, what is the thing God wants to preserve in the world? Well, it's that in Genesis 1, he created the world the way he intended to, good and pure and perfect. And the thing that has been destroying the world, the thing that is bringing decay to this world ever since the fall is this thing we call sin. So we as Christians, if we're going to talk in this preserve language, should be the people that are preserving the world from sin. That we step in and we live with integrity. We live the way God designed us to live in Genesis 1. We live the way Jesus lived his life. We stand for the truths of his kingdom. And then as we do that in the preserving sense, we can then approach it in the purifying sense. Like the Old Testament sacrifices that salt is supposed to be put on. If part of the vital use of salt within Hebrew culture was for sacrificing and offering purposes in purity rituals, then I think it's reasonable uh, to see Christ followers as the means of that by which the world can be purified. Not that we have the ability to, but we represent Jesus to a world that needs to see that purity. And if that's the case, this isn't a go out and preserve the world by gaining power and oppressing the infidel. Get rid of the atheist. Get rid of those that don't want to follow Jesus. This is a, go purify the world. Go show them there's another way to live. This is why I, I love the ministries like the PRC. Because the PRC understands that abortion-minded people are not our enemy. They're not the people that we're trying to go and attack and waylay and put them in their place because we're preserving this world, okay? 
They're people that are broken by their own sin and blinded by their own destruction, and they need purification. They need Jesus in their life to see. So go be the preserving, purifying factor. They are not our enemies. They are people like you and me that desperately need the person and work of Jesus. And then Jesus says, go and be light. This one's quite easier to navigate because Jesus gives a lot of explanation to this one. In the same way, verse 16, let your light shine before others so they might see your good works and give glory to the Father in heaven. Go illuminate the world. We change people around us by illuminating the world around us. Light, salt, these things, they don't exist for themselves. They exist to benefit something else. The flavorless food, the dark room. We don't exist for us. We don't exist for building up First Baptist so that we can be the most important big church in town. Who cares? Go exist for the kingdom of God because that's what matters. Go illuminate the world that people may see, not us, but God. They can see our good works, sure, but who gets the credit for them? Our Father in heaven. Let them see what we're capable of and then say it's nothing to do with us. It's all what God is actually capable of. And another way we might say this is just illumination with a purpose. To use a hot button word in our time, I'll use the word influence. We change people around us by influencing. Now, when I, when I say influence, I hesitate to use, use that word because the term influencer has become this kind of like disembodied person on social media that curates their life to look really good and perfect. That's not this. That's not what God is getting at, what Jesus is getting at here. True influence, I would say, really never comes from the stranger out there. and We, we know that. Because true influence comes from the people around us right here. So here's my point. If you're going to be light, if you're going to influence people, then you've got to be around people who need to be influenced. You've got to be around people who need direction. You've got to be around people who need love. You have to be around people who need guidance. For us in Portales, that's probably not going to come in Instagram followers or podcast listeners. That's great. I mean, I have the church podcast up. Put it up there. But it's far more likely to come through being light to the people around us being light to the people at Walmart, being light to the people at Eastern New Mexico University, being light to the people you work with. And the purpose is not to be seen, but to show God. So let me wrap up with this. How, how do we do this in 2023? How do we make sense of all of this? And this has been something I think the church has been debating for the last 20 to 30 years. We've talked about this quite a bit, but if for the last 20, 30 years, if you look at a trajectory line of the church, you'll find most churches and most Christian in the West have just kind of been a steadily downward trajectory. And so many different churches have come in and said, we have to change this, and absolutely, number one, we can't, but it, it should change. You know, we, we're commissioned, we should go and see this changed. But then the discussion became, how do we do that? And I think we were really quick, just, just growing up in this myself, to say, okay, the way we do this is relevancy, relevancy, relevancy. Now, don't get me wrong. I think relevancy is absolutely important. Don't go talk to someone about something they don't care about. It doesn't matter to them. We do have to have relevancy. But when we said, if we can just be relevancy, what, what we meant was, hey, we're living in this post-Christian culture. If we can just, you know, like change our music and our style and our dress to match the culture, then the people will think we're cool and they're flo they'll flock to us. 
and like, yeah, dress cool, listen to awesome music. That's fantastic. I don't, that's not what I'm getting at. What I'm saying is we found quickly people didn't care because that's not what they were concerned with. And so I would say, how do we do this? We have to move from a mindset that's only relevancy to a mindset of resilience. From relevancy to gospel resilience. Because there is a generation of people coming up that their entire generation has been marked by anxiety and depression and fear of missing out. They've been entertained into oblivion. They've been inundated with so many options. They don't even know what to choose, just choice anxiety every time they walk into Walmart. And they've been trained that the only escape they have from the torture cycle of the mundane 40-hour work week is just distraction. So if they can keep up with the 79 different TV shows and movies to distract them, uh, then then they're, they're fine. And if they can't, then they're just not relevant, and it's time to figure this thing out. And I believe that the church's response to that can't be looking down our nose and be like, this just generation coming up. They have no idea what they're doing. Yet neither did anyone else's generation at that time. It's not about knowing what we're doing. It's about coming in and saying, there is a way. His name is Jesus. And he overcomes anxiety and depression. And he gives you purpose in life. And he will set you free. That's what Jesus means when he says, go be salt and light. Go make a difference in the world around you. Because I'm telling you, if there was ever a Sunday to say, the upcoming generation is hungry for this, it's this last week of news. I'm sure you've seen what's been going on at the campus in in Kentucky at Asbury and, and the revival that's just broken out among college students. And I think it has to be tied to this because this generation that's been just overly killed with anxiety and depression is coming out saying, we can't live this way anymore. And Jesus is the only thing that will set them free. And I'm telling you, if we stay in our church and we say, well, we'll just wait for them to get here, and we hope that they'll really like our music enough, and maybe we'll dress cool enough that they'll come out and they'll, they'll see us, they're not going to do it. But if you can go be a voice of gospel resilience to say, yeah, sometimes you feel anxiety, but Jesus is still greater. Yeah, sometimes depression sets in, but Jesus sets you free from that. And we can communicate that well while we display it as salt and light to the world. It will make a difference. I promise you. So what do we do? I think the best way to finish this is just repeat the words of Jesus. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. And maybe this morning you're saying, Philip, I don't feel like either of those two things. I've never even followed Jesus. What does that look like? I'll be right here. I would love to talk with you about it. it would be, nothing would be make my day better than to talk about that with you. If you do know that, And I was just saying, gospel resilience. Go be who Jesus has already made you to be. Go be light. Go be salt. Father God, thank you for what you do in us. And I do pray that you would make First Baptist a church of salt and light. That we would be a people that make Portalis difference. That when people encounter us from First Baptist, when people encounter us in other churches, from other churches, that they could not leave the same that you would send us out in an incredible way that would make an incredible difference. God, let us go.
as you have sent us. It's in Jesus' name we pray.